welcome to the Whole Story Podcast. This podcast series is focused on inspiring sustainability in agriculture using the framework of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, also known as the SDGs. Each week, our guests are invited to share their story, highlight a particular one of the 17 goals, and leave us with some practical tips for sustainability on farms. I'm Bex Smith, founder of The Whole Story, a B Corp certified social enterprise inspiring, facilitating, and articulating holistic sustainability in agriculture. And this podcast has been brought to life in partnership with the incredible team at FMG, who are passionate about partnering with organisations like The Whole Story, so together we can support rural New Zealand. So whatever you're doing while listening to this episode, thanks for choosing us. The best way you can support our mahi is to follow and share the show on whatever app you're listening on, and I hope this episode leaves you inspired and excited about the bigger picture of sustainability in agriculture. Today on the Whole Story podcast, I have the opportunity to catch up with Emeritus Professor David Norton. With an illustrious career behind him, having taught and researched the ecology and conservation of Aotearoa New Zealand's native biodiversity for over 35 years, David is just plain passionate about plants. This week's episode is based around UN Sustainable Development Goal 15, Life on Land. And David highlights the work he is doing through individual farm consultancy, his amazing workshops, public speaking events, industry body and independent advocacy. An avid mountaineer, tramper and Instagrammer, David is passionate about educating and engaging an audience around biodiversity conservation and sustainable farm management. David not only works alongside farmers, but also advocates at the highest levels for our native biodiversity. So kick back and enjoy, and get ready to take not one, but two practical actions on farm. Welcome along, everybody. Today, I have the pleasure of connecting with the lovely David Norton. Now, he will be no stranger to many of you, and we're going to be speaking today about life on land. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And so kicking right into it, I would love our listeners, and myself actually, to hear the story of David Norton. Gosh, yes. So I've spent basically my whole career working at the University of Canterbury. I did a Bachelor of Science in Botany. I did an honours degree and I did a PhD at Canterbury. They were in Botany and Ecology. I worked overseas for a couple of years at a place called the Climatic Research Unit at the University of East Anglia in the UK. And then the first job I got was back at the University of Canterbury. I didn't necessarily intend to go back there, but it was the first job that I was accepted for. And I worked there for 37 years. And my role there was teaching ecology, focusing on forests. I worked in the forestry school, forest ecology, forest botany, and a lot in recent years more around how do we conserve and sustain native forests? How do we manage native forests for their biodiversity values? Retired at the end of 2021 and am now living at Lake Hawea in beautiful Southern Lakes and working with farmers. Yeah, and I think working with farmers is a bit of an understatement. I don't know if any of our listeners have ever been along to one of your many workshops or speaking presentations, but you work alongside farmers to really challenge their thinking, to open their minds and to drive tangible outcomes, which is something I'm really passionate about with regards to your work, David. And I think, yeah, you definitely articulate that in a very humble way, but the work you do is really meaningful and very robust. 
Oh, thank you, Bex. That's really nice of you to say that. I think the way I look at it is that, you know, farmers are custodians of some amazing biodiversity. And I believe really strongly and passionately, I guess, that the best people to look after that biodiversity are the people who are there on the land. And I think we'll probably come back to this later on. I think one of the major things that's holding farmers back is just not necessarily being aware of what they have and its value. So if I can enthuse and help farmers better understand what they have, then I think that's awesome for me. This next question is the topic of sustainability. It's a core value to me and something I'm truly passionate about. And throughout this podcast series, we've asked all of our guests, actually, what sustainability means to them. So I'd love to hear your response and what it means to you personally. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, sustainability is one of those words that has been used and probably misused massively over recent decades. I guess I think sustainability to me is actually about resilience. And to me, it's about developing systems that are resilient to external perturbations, external disturbances. So I guess sustainable farming or sustainable biodiversity are biodiversity systems that are resilient to floods or droughts or whatever. So I guess that's how I look at sustainability. That's really interesting and a different viewpoint than what I've heard from other guests. So it's really providing quite a well-rounded and a holistic definition for sustainability, which I hope at the end of actually all of our episodes of this podcast series to be able to pull together a summary of that, because I think all of the insights from our guests are really important to build that picture. And Mm. I think that definition of resilience is a really interesting way of looking at sustainability and a way that people can connect with. And I think, Bex, it's becoming more and more important as we face the climate emergency that is out there. And I think we have to start thinking, not just is the system sustainable under the status quo, I guess resilience to me is thinking beyond the status quo environment and is thinking, okay, we're going to get more storm events, we're going to get more droughts, we're going to get a range of changes. So is our system able to be resilient to those changes? Can it adapt and move with those changes? So I guess that's why I think of resilience as the key term. Yeah, I really love it. So I'm interested to hear as well, could you describe to us your first link to agriculture? Yeah, that's an interesting question too. I actually did my first year at Lincoln. I started off studying for a BAG Sci at Lincoln back in the, gosh, 1970s. And I went through the first year and learned all sorts of things and started my second year at Lincoln. And you'll laugh at the story. We got about a month into the second year and we were doing two things. We were doing a bit of plant ecology, which I really, really loved. And we had a lecture called Gavin Daly and some of the folk who are listening to this who went to Lincoln and my generation will remember Gavin. And I really loved that plant ecology. And at the same time, we were dissecting lambs and I did not like dissecting lambs one little bit. It didn't work for me. And I remember saying to Gavin, are we going to do any more ecology? And he said, ah, no, this is it. But in those days, Lincoln was part of Canterbury University. It was all it was just a college of Canterbury. And Prof Langer was around then. And, and Gavin got me to talk to Prof Langer. And Prof Langer said, oh, well, look, we can transfer you over to Canterbury. And, you know, you can go and work with Colin Burroughs in the botany department if you're interested in ecology. So I transferred. So that was my first contact with agriculture. All because you didn't like chopping up lambs. Yep. And I've never <laughs> been I've never been any good at that sort of thing. Yep. <laughs> Oh, well, it takes all sorts, doesn't it? Do you know, I think in the same situation, I probably would have leaned 
at that stage away from ecology and more towards <laughs> the dissecting of lambs. But it's interesting how sometimes life swings and roundabouts and you end up taking interest as you get through your career and your life in areas that were perhaps shaded areas earlier on. Well, absolutely. And of course, look, I've spent the last 20 years at least primarily working with farmers. So you know, it has been a massive sort of a circular journey, I suppose, in some ways. But I still don't like cutting dead animals up. We'll let you away with it. You're probably doing plenty of other good work in your area of specialty, David. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. And so that was quite an entertaining story, but we also like to put people in the hot seat and ask for your funniest story relating to farming or agriculture. Yes, I thought about this quite a bit when I thought, hmm, what would it be? I was working, this is not that long ago, and my daughter was with me. I set up some biodiversity monitoring on Branches Station, which is up the head of the Shotover River. And we were heading out one morning, uh, issued an overnight trip to go and put some uh, goat disclosure plots. And we wanted to look at what impact goats were having on the forest on the farm. And we had to cross the shot over in our four-wheel drive. And I got stuck, which does happen from time to time. And the lovely young Lincoln student who was working on the farm that summer came out in the tractor and pulled me out. So that was fine. But the next day when we came back, I went and did it again. And got stuck crossing the shot over back to the homestead. And the look on her face when she came out the second time, I think she just thought, gosh, here am I rescuing a professor who's not only got stuck once, but got stuck twice in the same river at basically the same spot. So that would probably be the funniest story. <laughs> I remember as a school student working for a brick and blocky one holidays, and he said, you can make a mistake once, but you can't make it twice. <laughs> so there we are. Mm. Ah, well, these things do happen. So we have touched on there your career and how you got to where you are, I guess. But the next question's more about the journey. So I wonder if you might have an area in particular you want to dive deeper into around your journey through ecology, botany, biodiversity, and moving to the lovely Lake Hawea and starting up your own business down there. I'm passionate about plants, as I'm sure you know, and I love our native flora. I think our native flora, whether it's our forest flora or our alpine flora, is incredible. And I cannot spend enough time just looking at our plants and taking photos and just enjoying them. Obviously, I started out in botany and I've always loved ecology. Ecology is sort of understanding, you know, why that combination of plants and animals occurs in this place and not in that place. And because I was working in a forestry department, I got quite involved with some of the questions around the sustainable management of native forests. And that became very political back in the 90s. Yeah, I just didn't enjoy some of the politics around it. And I basically backed out of that field. And for various reasons, I was working with students on threatened plants and we started to develop an interest in restoration. And much of that was occurring on farmland. And really from there, I sort of started engaging more with farmers. And of course, you know, I'm a tramper and a climber, so I spent a lot of time in the high country anyway. And I knew some of the high country families and some of these threatened plants were on high country farms. And I got involved in restoration projects on places like Banks Peninsula and North Canterbury. And so from there, I sort of moved more into working in agricultural systems. And I think it came at the same time that I realized that most of the ecology conservation work that's been done in New Zealand universities by academics and by students was focusing mainly on the public conservation land. And there's actually very little occurring on the rest of New Zealand. Remember, two-thirds of New Zealand is not public conservation land, and yet there's amazing biodiversity on that two-thirds. And we actually did, a, with my postgrads back about 2000, we did a survey of 
the New Zealand ecological literature over the previous few decades, and we showed that 90% of the science was being done on public conservation land, yet there's this two-thirds of New Zealand that was getting very little attention. And I guess I basically just shifted my attention to those parts of New Zealand, and particularly sheep and beef farms, and really trying to understand what's there, try to understand how it's interacting with farming systems, and then particularly how can we then start to sustain it and enhance it and move forwards from there. It's really interesting to hear some of those reasons for the paths that you've taken, whether that's based on personal interest through the mountaineering tramping, Mm. but also just that need for research and work in the space. And you're also really active on social media. So your Instagram account is, you know, if you're not following David Norton on Instagram already, you need to do so because I find it really inspirational. I really enjoy the photography. You take wonderful photos of the biodiversity out either on farmland or on your adventures tramping and mountaineering. How did you get into Instagram and sharing that journey? Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure, actually. My wife, Jo, was using Instagram quite a bit, and I'm not a social media person. Instagram is the only social media I use. I don't use LinkedIn. I don't use Facebook. I only use Instagram. And yeah, I'm not quite sure how it started, but I've really enjoyed it. And people who follow me will know that my approach has been to try and use Instagram as an educational tool. I'm not trying to preach. I'm just trying to share things that interest me, things that I think are important. And I found it an incredibly positive environment. You hear a lot of criticism of social media being negative and everything. I've just found it really positive. Look, I've got some really good friends who I met through Instagram and have got to know subsequently, and I find it a very positive way of engaging. Yeah, I'd agree there because I'm the same. I'm active across multiple forms of social media, and I must say that Instagram would be my favorite. I find it a really positive space. I find it a really useful tool to be able to, as you say, to share your thoughts, to inspire based on the visual image. I think lends itself really well to the work that you're doing and that it's a really effective tool for engagement and sharing a bit of inspiration, a bit of insight and a bit of education. I do wonder, Bex, though, sometimes if my posts are too long, (laughs) people actually read the whole thing or not. I think it's good. Some posts are short, some posts are long on Instagram. You provide the visual support to that too. So if people just want to look at beautiful photos Mm. of our native biodiversity, then they've got those to go by. But if they really want to read deeply and connect with what you're sharing there, they have Mm. that option too. So I think it meets people where they're at. So the whole story's work in this podcast is based around the framework of the United Nations Sustainable Development Mm. Goals. And this episode in particular is focused on goal number 15, which is life on land, Mm. which is kind of a broad umbrella. But I wonder if we could dive into some of the targets underneath that. And even just to clarify to people, if I use the extended heading for goal 15, it's life on land sustainably manage forests, combat desertification, halt and reverse land degradation, and halt biodiversity loss. So something that's probably dear to your heart there in those targets, Mm. David, Mm. and I wonder if you could speak to some of those. Yeah, I guess the things that motivate me and that I draw from those particular targets really overlap several of them. But to me, I look at New Zealand, I look at our beautiful country, and I see this incredible biodiversity that that is largely endemic. It only occurs in New Zealand. And I think, well, you know, we need to sustain this biodiversity. It's what makes us unique. It's what 
defines us as who we are, whether we are Māori or Pākehā, it's very much part of our identity. And the only place we can sustain, whether it's kaka or whether it's rimu or whatever the species are, is in New Zealand. We're not going to sustain them anywhere else. And then I guess going back to what I talked about before, there's been so much focus on biodiversity conservation on public land in New Zealand, but very, very little on farmland. And I look at our farmland, and our farmland is mainly in the lowlands, and it's mainly in the areas where we've had the greatest biodiversity loss. And so I feel that whether we're talking about reversing the effects of habitat loss, whether we're talking about sustaining threatened species, a lot of it has to occur within the rural landscapes of New Zealand. And so to me, a lot of what I do overlaps with these different goals. I really feel we've got to look after what we've got. We've got to improve the condition of what we've got, and we've got to get more biodiversity in there. And I really believe that the people on the ground, the farmers, are the people who are in the best position to do all of that as long as we can support them properly. Yeah, and I would invite people to, I'll put a link in the show notes, but to have a look at the different targets underneath that because as David refers to there, they do cross over a lot with the work that he's doing and what he's speaking to here. And it is really important that we look at our rural farmland to actually restore and enhance the biodiversity that we have on that land because, yeah, it does make up a large proportion of that land that our biodiversity exists on in New Zealand. I actually feel it's fundamentally important. Unless we want to live in a country where you basically go to a, a park to see biodiversity and public conservation land is all in the mountains, unless we want to really separate, and I think none of us, I mean, that's not what sustainable development's about. It's not about separating, it's about trying to bring everything together in the same environment. And so I think we have to sustain, we have to enhance biodiversity across all of Aotearoa and New Zealand. And I do believe that that biodiversity, because it's evolved here, is also much better adapted to growing here. So it can offer us a whole raft of other benefits aside from its own value. So, I mean, I think native forest across hillsides are going to be far better. If we had Tairawhiti, East Cape, and native forest rather than in monocultural pine stands, I doubt would have had the impacts we've been having up there over the last couple of weeks, for example. So I feel it's got so much more to offer us than just its own value. Yeah, I really agree with that. It's essential. We need to be addressing this. And I know we've had a brief conversation about it and I've explored a bit deeper. Is I live here in the middle of the Maniatoto Plains and on a farm that is on that low-lying land and doesn't look like what it would have looked like originally. And so trying to restore that biodiversity, what would have been here? What would it have looked like? Because it's hard to find those remnants. And there's probably some of our listeners who are in a similar situation going, where do I start? Adding to that complexity is that because of global change, not only climatic change, but also because of extinctions and introduced species and everything else, what could potentially be there in terms of native species may well be different to what was there you know, two or 300 years ago or 800 years ago when the first humans reached New Zealand. So there's an added complexity again. Yeah, and I think that's something really interesting to think of is not restoring to what it once was. It's actually restoring it in a way that enhances that biodiversity in a way that's suited and fit. Resilient. It's got to be resilient. So, I mean, this digresses a little bit from where we'd planned to go, but I wonder then when you're working with some of your farmers for the first time and you go out onto a property like that, how do you find what might be there already? There's obviously some farms that have Mm. 
very obvious remnants to restore or to enhance. But on a farm that's kind of a blank slate, where do you start, David? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, like where you are in the Mania Toto, there aren't many remnants around. And I guess the obvious is you look at what's on farm, but I mean, what's on farm is probably Matagari and, and a few other things like that that don't really tell you much about what might have been there. The next step is you start looking in the wider landscape. There's a surprisingly large amount of work done on historic forest patterns in New Zealand. People have gone and studied pollen or looked at, you know, like many of the mountain ranges around you, there'll be tortera logs lying up there on the hillsides. You poke into little gullies that might have escaped fire and you can build up a bit of a picture. But it's not easy. You know, it's difficult in landscapes like yours in particular, where we don't know a lot about what the previous vegetation would be. And maybe one of the approaches we need to take is simply, well, any native vegetation is better than none. And just try and think about what, what is doing well in other people's plantings and try and adapt those to your particular situation. Yeah, I really enjoy that approach. It's like, step back, take a look at what might be around you if it's not a glaringly obvious remnant in place on farm. But also that reimagining that what mm. native biodiversity could look like on your properties and try something. And yeah. there are people who've got good knowledge. I mean, the people I always would point to would be Kiwi2 reps. They have a lot of experience poking around small corners and finding things and knowing what might have been there. Well, often the plant nurseries, because they're often looking for seeds and they'll know where the last core fires or patches of tortura or whatever it is that occurs in your area. And they poke around in weird corners as well. And they often have a good idea of what's out there. So people like that can be really helpful. And I'll, I'll go and talk to those people myself as well, because often I'm working in areas well, like your area in the Money of Toto. I don't really know it at all. So, I mean, I'd be talking to those sorts of people too, to try and find out more about what might be there, what might have been there. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'll try and get some of those links and we'll pop them in the show notes as well to be able to support people who are listening to this to get them started with a connection locally that they can speak to because I think that's a really good starting point because once you start speaking to local people about local plants and you start listening to things like the content that you provide, David, I think it really ignites a passion for plants. I mean, there are online resources like iNaturalist. They can also be a useful source, but they're quite technical. So you need to know what an Olearia denicarpa is or whatever the species that you're looking at. But they can certainly help as well. But I think it amazes me traveling around the country how many people are passionate about what's out there and actually know an awful lot. And it's in people's heads. It's not being written down. So if you find those people in your communities, then they are a really valuable source of information. So yeah, we did digress a little bit, but I think it's come with a really practical outcome for people that allows them to connect with that and their land. So the next question then, looking at all of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, which one of those do you align with most personally and why? Yeah, I'm going to answer it in an oblique way because I think almost all of them are strongly interconnected and we need to be addressing all of them if we're to tackle the problems the world is facing today. And I believe that we are now at a stage with the impact of greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere where we are facing an unprecedented future. And I think to address that unprecedented future, we need to make some pretty major and very rapid changes in the way we do an awful lot of things. And I think when you look at those sustainability goals, that they all sort of overlap into that same sort of area again. I mean, some people will say, actually, the fundamental 
problem we need to address if we are to address the climate crisis we're facing is goal number one, which is addressing social inequality. That is the fundamental thing. And underpinning that is things like health and education and gender equality and so forth. Jonathan Porritt, the environmentalist, makes the argument in his book, Hope and Hell, that one of the biggest components of addressing the climate emergency is to give women the right to education in many parts of the world. So I guess what I'm saying is these things are all interconnected in my mind. And to me, I am very driven by trying to find ways that we can progress addressing what I think is an incredible catastrophe that is not that far in the future. And I think we are tending to ignore it. So it is a bit of a trick question because quite a few people have not picked one. They've picked them all in They're some small way of fashion because that's, that is the change that we need to see. But I also believe, and I believe this very strongly, that the climate emergency is something that unifies everything because it really is real and I feel very scared and very motivated by it at the same time. But I actually believe the climate emergency also offers us the opportunity to really address other issues like social inequality. Because I don't believe we can address the climate emergency without addressing social inequality. And I don't believe that we can address social inequality without addressing the climate emergency. And I see climate and biodiversity as being inextricably linked. I mean, you know, the climate emergency and the biodiversity crisis are the same. And I think the solutions and a solution that I'm getting increasingly involved in, I really feel if we can enhance native forest in New Zealand, we can actually address a whole raft of social and obviously climate issues in New Zealand at the same time. So they are incredibly linked. For me, it's like the climate emergency is the reason for change, but it also creates the tension for change in the other areas, doesn't it? So yeah, I agree with you there. Mm. So what do you see then as the biggest challenge to New Zealand's agricultural sector regarding sustainability? And I do like to flip the script on this and turn it into an opportunity because we like to keep people in that positive and inspired mindset. Yeah, I think we have got an incredible opportunity globally. Look, at the end of the day, we're a trading country. We make our income. The reason we've got fast broadband and coffee machines and all of this stuff is because of agriculture, because we trade our products and sell them around the world. So I think the opportunity comes out of the crisis we're facing, the climate change crisis. If we can adapt our agriculture systems in New Zealand to become climate neutral or climate positive, if we can adapt our agricultural systems to be biodiversity positive, if we can adapt our agricultural systems to becoming water and nutrient positive, then we've got an incredible marketing story. I feel we've got potentially a unique marketing story. So I think it's an opportunity, but it's also a necessity because I think we are seeing already trade barriers going up and up and up, and they're all being argued around things like carbon and that, but they're actually trade barriers. They're good old-fashioned trade barriers. And I think New Zealand will only be successful if we can actually capitalise on these opportunities to be able to market our products. So we actually have to change what we're doing, and we're already moving in that direction, but I think it's got to be part of our story to market our products. And so that's the opportunity. But I think if we don't change, we're not going to be able to market our products anyway. So it's also an essential, if not just an opportunity. And do you see there as being one strategy or method to get there, or do you see it as being a myriad of different options? Both, but I think if there was one thing, I think we've got to be able to walk the talk, as they say. We've got to actually be able to prove to the world that it's not greenwashing. We've got to really, really avoid the track of greenwashing. And so we've actually got to be out there and actually proving to the world that we are 
you know, doing these things to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. We're doing these things to improve biodiversity on farm. We are doing these things to improve water. That then comes down to having really good management and monitoring systems so that we can actually document and actually provide the data to back up the claims. Look, greenwashing will sink New Zealand so fast. The world is becoming very sceptical and very critical. And you've only got to read virtually weekly now, this credit and that credit has been criticised because it's greenwashing. We've got to be able to say, hand on heart, we are doing these things. So we need change and we need to be able to justify or support that change with good objective information. Yeah, and do you think we have the measuring systems and frameworks in place to be able to articulate that without it being greenwashing? I think we're moving there. I mean, I think it's really easy to fall back on using remote sensing type metrics, which don't actually tell you a hell of a lot. I think we are moving in the right direction. I see it as a journey, and I think the more farmers that start on that journey of looking after their biodiversity, the better we are. I mean, you know, we can't achieve everything overnight or in a year or even in 10 years, but I think if we can have trajectories, we can have some really good case studies to illustrate what farmers and groups of farmers, as you know, I'm a great believer in farmers working together in catchment groups, are achieving in terms of biodiversity or carbon or whatever the environmental issue is. I think those case studies will become really, really important to show the world what we're doing. But no, there's more work needed for sure, but I'd hate to create a bureaucracy just to develop those metrics at the same time. Yeah, we definitely don't need more of that because that will just slow down, I think, the movement of action on the ground. And I think this adds a really important point. We're always talking about farmers telling their story. But I think what we're adding to this then is farmers need to tell their story, but they also need to measure their story. Because it's not just about talk. We actually have to have some proof in behind it so we don't just get seen as greenwashing. Yep. And one of the challenges there is it's really easy to say, I planted a thousand plants or I killed a hundred possums. But what is the biodiversity outcome from that? So we've got to tease both of those out. I mean, I think it's really important if a farmer plants a thousand plants or kills 500 possums or whatever. But I think it's more, what is the biodiversity outcome? The understory in my forest remnant is really coming back again. That's a really important statistic. My plants have now started attracting Karimako bellbirds into my planting. That's an important statistic. And I also agree with your comment about, I think farmers, because it's the nature of many farmers, don't necessarily want to be in in the social media glare, yet farmers telling the stories is pretty awesome too. And I think we need to tell a lot more. There's a lot more happening out there than the public thinks. And I think we need to be telling those stories. Yeah. And how valuable do you see photos as being part of that? Not only telling the story, but measuring the story. Oh, look, photos, you know, there's an old saying, a photo is worth a thousand words. The two things about photos, of course, photos can be faked. We know all about that with fake news and whatever. But photos do tell, particularly before and after photos tell an awful lot. And I think they're really valuable. And of course, they're really simple to do. And I mean, one of the things that I owe your last question is what's a practical take-home action? I feel that every farmer in New Zealand who's got biodiversity on their farm should establish photo monitoring, whether it's a planting or a remnant or a tussock-covered hillside establish some photo points and just get an understanding of change. So you yourself are informed, but also you can show others what's going on on your farm. Yeah, I think that's really great. I'm going to challenge you then. By the time we get to the last question, you're going to have to think of another practical take-home action. (laughs) We've touched on this one already as well, which is around the next 12 months. I wonder if you could share a little bit more around that project you've got coming up in the next 12 months and the work that you see in that space. 
And also anything else that you've got on the horizon for the next year, David? Yeah, okay. Look, there's lots of things happening. I work with a number of individual farms and farmers, and that will be continuing. And I love doing that work. That one-on-one I find incredibly satisfying. I've really enjoyed, as you know, because you're at the workshop, I was involved in a series of workshops through Otago latter half of last year. And I love that interaction with a group of farmers. And I know there are more in the pipeline, and I'm really looking forward to that. But the other thing I'm getting involved with, I'm working with an organization, it's a charitable trust called Pure Advantage. They're a group of environmentally-minded leading business people in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and they really believe strongly that business decision-making needs to be based around the environment as a primary consideration. So it's a pretty motivating group of people to be with. They've had a couple of really exciting programs over the last few years, one around regenerative agriculture, and then more recently one around regenerating native forests. And spinning out of that, we are starting up a program where we're going to be putting a lot of pressure on government and business and the general public as well, but really trying to get government to really look at the role of recarbonisation, of establishing native forests to take carbon out of the atmosphere. I mean, we've increased the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere by half again since industrial revolution. So there's a huge amount of carbon already in the atmosphere, leaving aside what's going to be going out in the next few years. And planting native forests is an incredibly sustainable resilient, long-term solution to that, to bring that carbon back down, lock it up in the biosphere. And of course, all the other benefits that native forest provides for communities, for biodiversity, for water, for everything else. And so we're going to run a program this year where we're going to look at trying to get government to adopt this and to really make it a priority for Aotearoa New Zealand to really upscale and plant native forests. Let's get away from pine trees. Let's get native forests that are permanent, long-term, as a way to address not only the climate emergency as one part of that, but also to address the biodiversity crisis we're facing. So that will hopefully be a lot of my energy over the next few months, trying to convince the political parties, because we've got an election in October, and I think I'd love to see all of the major political parties adopting this. So that's a quick summary. Yeah, just a quiet 12 months for you there, David. But I think that will be music to many listeners' ears to hear a real concerted effort going into changing that strategy around actually using native afforestation and trying to shift away from exotics and really create that as part of Aotearoa New Zealand's future. Oh, and the win-win-wins, you know, that the wins for, for society, for culture, the wins for biodiversity, the wins for carbon, they just all line up and pie trees just don't do it. And I'd like to see every farmer really look at the way they're using the land. And I think it's beholden on people like me. I mean, I'm not going to do it all by any means, but people who have the skills that I have to provide the support to farmers and to try and think about, it's not just putting trees in the ground, it's thinking about where they are in the ground. How can they improve linkages for mobile species like birds to move around landscapes? We all want more tui and kateru in our landscapes. So it's looking at it as a spatial issue and just recognising all of those benefits. Yeah, that is really meaningful work. And so I look forward to seeing how this progresses and hope to be able to support you in any way possible. So just reach out if you need. And so bringing our listeners back down to that real grassroots level on farm, and you've already given one practical take-home action, so I'm going to challenge you to perhaps come up with a second What can our listeners do to contribute to sustainability within their farming businesses, David? From a biodiversity perspective, I presume I could talk about other things, but let's focus on biodiversity. I feel that the very first thing as a farmer that it would be awesome to do would be just to try to have a better understanding of what you have on your farm. 
And whether that's going with a catchment group and finding a bit more about what biodiversity is in the area, just having an understanding of what you have and where it fits into the regional context. I think that, and then following up with just some simple photo monitoring. Yeah, I think they are two really straightforward things that people can start doing today. And working in catchment groups, look, I believe that the answer for a lot of the issues we're facing are going to be by working together. And I think catchment groups are an incredible thing, and I really think that they have a super important role to play. I agree with you there. I think it's just so powerful to see groups of farmers, people, landowners, land users connecting together over a common purpose. And that model of being able to lean on each other, support each other, ask each other questions, you really get a greater momentum and a greater output of change by working as a team. Absolutely. And look, there's some wonderful people, whether it's in the New Zealand Land Care Trust, all of the local sort of organisations that are supporting catchment groups that are there, that are keen and are willing and will help. And I think tapping into those resources is so important. Yeah. And I know this is probably slightly off topic, but it provides so much as well in the space for rural mental health. Do you know, we become quite isolated out on farms and trying to do it all alone. And so being able to be a part of a group of peers trying to achieve things together and being there for each other and having those people who are jumping out of their skin to be able to support us and provide that help. I think that's just so important for being able to provide a little bit of mental reprieve and a little bit of the support that we so need in our rural sector. Yep, couldn't agree more. That, that's so true. So I think this has been such a wonderful conversation, David, and I'd love to take the opportunity now to thank you so much. I know that I've attended several of your workshops now, and I thoroughly enjoy every interaction that we have and the wealth of knowledge that you provide in the biodiversity space, but also just your humility and your approach to working alongside farmers to really drive something that not only you're passionate about, but you then instill that passion in others. So thank you so much for sharing with me today and our listeners. And I know this certainly won't be the last conversation we have in this space. Oh, well, thank you, Bex. Look, I really appreciated the chance to chat to you. I always enjoy chatting to you and I'm super pleased that I met you a year and a half ago. And yeah, this has been awesome. So thank you very much for asking me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Whole Story Podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it and are feeling inspired and optimistic about putting sustainability into practice on farm. I have one last request for you before you go. Make sure whatever platform you're listening to us on that you hit follow and share the show or episodes with your friends so that together we can grow our community and inspire sustainability and agriculture in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And thanks again to FMG for partnering with The Whole Story so that we could bring this podcast to life for you all to enjoy. Catch you next time.